But we'll get started tonight. And tonight's lesson is on God is in control. Mm-hmm. This has been waiting to be taught for centuries. <laughs> so anyway, God is in control. True or false? Okay. Is it a question mark? I was going to say define control. We're going there. It, who's he in control of? Okay. All right, let's begin, and we're going to take a look at this. And tonight we're going to start on the introduction of the concept of God is in control. Is that a true or false statement? And the statement that God is in control is, first of all, not in your Bible. So you're dealing with something that has been stated quite often. But it's not where you can find that concept in the Bible. Now, people that speak that will say, yes, it's in the Bible in this context or whatever. But we're going to go through that. We're going to look into definitions and we're going to see what do we really mean by this statement. So I can say this for this statement. It is at least a tradition. You know, it's a saying. But there's no place in scriptures that actually says these words in either the Hebrew or the Greek. So we have a tradition. Now, this is probably the worst possible way that this statement is thrown around. It's thrown around every time a disaster or crisis hits. That's when you hear people say, God is in control. What does it mean? Why do we use a statement like this when something goes wrong? People say, well, God is in control when somebody dies. When someone very young is killed early in their life. When we lose our job, our career. When somebody gets sick, sick, they can't recover. They have a terminal disease, a car wreck. When a storm, tornado happens, the first thing you want to subtract from your vocabulary is something that's a pat answer. And pat answer is basically, we can say some really dumb things when something terrible happens. If you ever talk to anybody who's had a tragic loss, they'll tell you what the dumb things Christians manage to say to them. It's probably not the best time to talk theology with someone when they've had something horrendous happen to them. I know why you tend to do it, because sometimes the worst things possible come out of their mouth, like there's a lot of anger, like if they feel like you have any kind of spiritual strength to you, they will start trying to demand that you give them an answer in their raging pain. So sometimes it almost sounds like mocking God, it sounds like heresy, and so you're trying to tone that down some, but honestly that's not the conversation at that moment they can have. So at some point they may come back to you and say, let's talk this out, what happened? But people throw this out glibly. You know, they throw this out on the table. God is in control, and somebody is reeling from what has just taken place. And so that's where I would tell you just for sure, strike it out of your vocabulary to ever throw this at somebody and to just wreck their world to not only have had something terrible go down for them, but that you also are telling them God did this to you. All right, now I'm going to give you a kissing cousin. Kissing cousin to this concept. And the phrase that some people use in place of this or along with this is God has everything happen for a reason. As if God is some mysterious, has some mysterious reason that we won't know until we're safely in heaven as to why he had to kill the person we love. And so that is something that is very close and equally as damaging is something like that of where you come up with God has a reason for it. Another cousin to this, another kinship statement that someone would holler, God will never give you more than you can bear. And they're saying, uh, this is more than I can bear. <laughs> yeah, John hit the nail on the head. 
So, yes, things do happen for a reason, but it's usually not <laughs> the reason that we're thinking on that. There's some type of consequences, someone's bad choices. It's the work of the enemy because he has great wrath and he's running around doing as much damage as he can to anybody that serves the Lord because his time is short. I mean, you've heard that great theology before. When do you have something terribly bad happen to your life? And they say there's only two times. One is when you're out of the will of God. You can have an open door and something terrible can happen to you. That's why they say never make a decision in a backslidden condition. You literally have to watch it because when you're out of the will of God, sometimes the worst thing can happen to you. The only other time that it happens is when you're in the will of God. So those are the only two times something bad can happen to you. When you're out of the will of God and when you're in the will of God. I knew that would kind of help y'all to know that, <laughs> that we have it just consigned to those two ideas. So that lets you know that you can't per se that that's what that person has going on at that moment. So it can be bad choices. I mean, literally, if you sell your child to the highest bidder somewhere and something bad happens to the child, there might be a few consequences of some of these things. So, you know, people have to take a responsibility for some of the decisions they make. But the work of the enemy and the fallen nature of the world can cause them, but not God. So this mysterious God has a reason or there's a reason for it is really the worst thing you can say because that's not really on the list of the reason why it happened. And it's tragic and emotionally you're there to give them some kind of emotional support to know that God's love. And like this man who's Family had probably the worst situation I've ever heard of happen to him where like his daughter killed his son, something like that. It was a terrible situation, but he said that what he came to is he was never going to allow what he didn't understand about God to change what he did understand about God. And so that's where you stick to the, what God has said to you, that he is love, that he's not a parent who switches and gives you bad gifts, all these different things. So if we believe that God wills everything, good or bad, to happen to us, it might be that we're wanting temporary relief. Is why we say that God is in control. We want relief from the confusion, from your mind being blitzed out of, of saying, well, God just wills it, or, or the condemnation. You know, because basically what you're wanting to hear is, nothing is expected of me. So we don't feel guilty. So a lot of times they come up with this concept that everything that happens on earth, God willed it in order to never have to experience anything. And they get a sense of relief by putting it off on God who you can't see and can't figure out till you're in another realm rather than looking into possibilities. You know, it's like a medical doctor is how I look at it, that when they're trained to fight a certain type of illness, if they lose somebody, then they tear it apart, break it down to figure out what they can do different. Like they take a perspective of it to realize the disease is the enemy and I've got to figure out what I can do different next time or what will work. And as Christians, sometimes I think doctors have better theology than Christians do. Because immediately the group that knows that God bore our condemnation and guilt is the first one trying to get rid of their own guilt and condemnation. We act like that there's no cure of guilt or condemnation. 
So if we truly believe that God wills everything, both good and bad, that happens to us, we're ignoring our lack of responsibility or taking proper authority. And it's just a quick thing to blame God. Started in the garden, Adam and Eve began by blaming God. But in the long term, what happens is a problem develops with this theology. It doesn't stand the test of time. Because what happens is you develop this thing where you can't fully trust God. Like you can't fully trust the promises or what happens because this mysterious force comes in that literally you never know what he's going to do. And we end up moving back from the fatherhood of God that's expressed in Jesus to more of a concept like mythology of just saying you don't know when that God is going to be capricious and he might do this or might not do that without any knowledge or understanding on your part. And so we're reducing God down to something where he plays these cosmic games with us. If you get into this realm of a long-term belief that God wills evil, when he clearly tells you that Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come for a different reason for your life, and if he gave us his son, why would he withhold something so much smaller? I mean, if our eternal life is promised and secured, and that he's made heaven as wonderful as it is, if he's eternally going to have us live with him, then these other things are just minor compared to that. So you have to start with an assurance of what God has promised and to rest assured that God is stable in his commitment to you. But what happens on this concept that God wills everything, you can guarantee that what comes out of this is passive theology. And you become a passive Christian. Now what we don't like is the thought of God being a passive God. We don't want God to be passive. But we're more than willing to not take the promises that God has given us, the faith that he's asked us to demonstrate towards him, and the trust, and we just take on this characteristic of just being passive. And you would think Christians just really weren't given any type of resistance ability. So, in this idea of does God have everything under control. Is he in control? This is a basic understanding tonight of understanding how people are using this statement. Because it's interesting what people mean by it. Like everybody who said God is in control is not meaning the same thing by it. So I want to reduce it down to first saying, what do you mean by it when you say God is in control? Are you just trying to give yourself an out? Are you not willing to look at it at any degree and see if there's something up? And I'm not saying enter into guilt. I've never seen guilt make me less of a sinner. <laughs> I've never seen condemnation ever help me get where I needed to belong. It's grace and mercy that gets us there. So I'm not saying put guilt on you. It won't help you. Regret is, is a terrible thing to live with. But a lot of times with saying that God is in control, what we're trying to find is comfort. Because we're in a terrible place. So we use this phrase as a pat answer anytime something goes wrong and we're facing a terrible situation. And if you get the blessing of being a chaplain or a good friend to someone and they see you as their spiritual mentor, don't be at loss of words and just give them some answer that off the top of your head that does more damage than it does good. You know, and working with people on their testimony and what's happened, a lot of times this has been something that has cost that person several years of their walk with God. Don't compound their grief. 
So I'm asking you right now to remove it out of your vocabulary as something as a pat answer. But let's explore what it really means because you could be saying it in one context and they receive it in a different one. But I'm going to ask you, is it true? And we're going to come down the line of exploring this particular thing. And because people are facing sometimes their worst moments in their life. Even though we know that it's appointed to every man to die once, unless we're so blessed that we live through this um, great thing and see the glorious return of the Lord, it is part of the process because of death coming into the world. So you will help people walk through these type of things. But us dying was not God's ideal. He kind of liked the idea of us eating out of the tree of life and living forever. So let's not try to move our own problems, even if they're universal problems, onto God. Alright, so in trying to find comfort or when we just don't know what to say, we say the most awkward, stupid things that we could possibly say, we want to say something spiritual. The worst is when someone has spiritual pride when they say it. Well, they're sitting there not hurting, and they pass it on to you, the monkey of saying, well, God is in control, and you want to slap them. Now you have an enemy. Like, you've got to be kidding, because it smacks of spiritual pride sometimes. You know, it's said with very much uh, not their heart in their hand, not the compassion of the Lord who wept at uh, Lazarus' funeral, not the Jesus I knew who interrupted every funeral he went to, not the Jesus that I see in Scripture where he looked and said, Oh, this is the only son of this widowed mother. I must raise him. I mean, that's compassion. I mean, Jesus was counting family members then and said, This one I have to do. So Jesus was amazing at his ability to wreck a good funeral and change the course. So don't take a position that the Lord didn't take. I never heard Jesus say well, God's in control here, and he's teaching you something. I never heard that come out of his mouth. So if you just don't have it to give as a minister, don't blame it on God. God is in control has literally become our catchphrase for everything. I mean, I see some beautiful paintings, but it says God is in control underneath it. And I'm asking myself, what does that mean? So we're going to repeat that it's not a biblical statement. It's not in your Bible in that form in, in the Greek or the Hebrew. It is that tradition and there's no place in scripture to say these words but boy we have adapted it. I mean I think people would swear by it that God helps those who help themselves and God is in control of thinking both of them are in your Bible. So what do we mean when we say it? Because there are some people who say God is in control and they're not meaning it as a pat answer. They're not doing it in a haughty spiritual way. They're hanging on to it with their life. So we're going to touch on what is being said and the answer to give at this moment and also to tell yourself. So God is in control. If you're saying it to me, God controls everything that has happened and will happen. I would say you're in dangerous territory. Jesus had categories called this ought not be. I mean this ought not be to me is one of the most remarkable statements he made when he saw a lady bent over and theologians would go, well, that's God's will or it wouldn't be there. And Jesus says, this ought not be. Luke 13. Well, I'm going to tell you, there's one person that would agree with Jesus. The lady bent over. <laughs> you know, by the time her head's down between her ankles, and you can imagine the excruciation in her back. I mean, it is a sight to behold that she was bent double. And he looks at her and they say, hey, put this off till tomorrow. 
because you can legally heal her tomorrow. Don't do it today. But he was so moved with compassion. He was like, this shouldn't wait one more day. Of course I'm going to heal her today on the Sabbath. Of course today's the day of her healing. Look, you hypocrites. If you had a donkey caught, you know, in a, or a sheep caught in a ditch, you're not going to leave them. So you'll do it for your pocketbook. But here I'm doing it for her. And you're being that spiritual prideful person. So he just kind of knocked that out. So I'm going to say I'm dealing with the God who has a category called ought not be's. And there are ought not be's. In fact, you could have a ministry of helping people get the ought not be's out of their life. So the view, if it doesn't happen, then it's not God's will. Or if it does happen, it is God's will, is really kind of a scary place theologically to go. It's not backed by scripture. It's, to me, backed by lazy interpretation. And you might can make a case for what some might call a paradox, but I'm not even thinking it's a paradox. And I'm going to tell you why in a minute of what I believe. So, why is this a scary thing? Because it creates a will of God that is tied to or tethered to our experience. And everybody goes, we don't want an experiential Christianity. Like, this group of people, they only base their theology on experience. And you know what? The very person judging that and setting that standard is doing the exact same thing because they'll say, I know a good person who wasn't healed. And they're tying the promise of God that by his stripes were healed to their experience. They're tying everything they know that has happened to an experiential faith rather than a biblical faith. It is fine to say, the Bible says this and this isn't what happened, because it reminds me of the Lord telling you, hey, I've given you the promised land. He has some fine print. He forgot to say, and there's a few giants in the land. <laughs> like there, there are some things that are theologically yours that aren't yours by experience. So don't give me an experience answer on this. Don't tell me that that's why you're saying that. So you're tying it to your experience, what the will of God is, rather than to the Bible and the words of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one who really knows what God thinks. He spent quite a bit of time with him before he came to earth. So that's where I go for my theology on the character of God. And they'll say, well, it's clear to me it's not God's will for that baby to live because he drowned in the pool. So they don't even have a category for something happening outside of God's will. So what's left out is nothing will come into my life or your life today that God either did not allow or decree for ultimate good. Now that is a whole concept in itself by just the verbs I chose to use. God allow, God decreeing. It's left out how people use this expression and how do you use it. The idea that whatever takes place was God's will for that day, but yet you're supposed to be getting up in the morning saying, Lord, I'm praying that your will that's being done in heaven, because it is being done up there, will come down here on where we're flawed <laughs> on earth and fallen, and may your will be done. If you're not praying that every day, then I would say right there is an open door. That you're not asking God that his will be done in your life. Look at the bottom of your feet where you put your feet at your turf and you want God's will being done everywhere you have you walk in authority. You're bringing God's will into your job. 
I'm looking at some of you that work in some dangerous situations, and I'm saying bring God's will into it. We don't factor in our responsibility to be obedient. And then, lo and behold, I read books on why did bad things happen to good people, and they never have one chapter on the enemy. I'm just like, how can they not factor that guy in? I mean, they don't have to give him preeminence, but let's at least have an honorable mention for his chaotic way that he's brought disaster on the earth. It's not biblical to leave him out of your book. So, factor in the enemy. If you're going to have a discussion with me of how come this happened, factor the devil in. He hasn't been on good behavior since I've ever read about him. And I think, in not making light of the situation, I don't think you can understand the hate and the evil within someone who completely hates God and he wants to hurt him. He wants to hurt God. He can't hurt God. The only way he can get to God is hurting you. The only way that he can bring any kind of an emotional thing to God is destroying your life when God had better plans for you. Factory man. Have the discussion with me in a biblical way. Don't tie it to your experience. Tie it to what the Word of God says. We just act like everything that happens to us is His doing and God's fault if it goes wrong. It's cruel when a person has lost a baby drowned to even begin to say something innocent was given the death penalty. I do not see how people can sit there and think that God is pro-life and serve a God that they truly believe that what they're doing to help life at conception to have a chance because it's completely innocent than to turn around and think God does such a thing. And we're creating a monster out of the character of God that is not shown to us through Jesus. So, we need to realize that God did not create a puppet world. If you want to study something unusual I would say, let's have a little fun. Are angels in a puppet world? Their free will seems to be a little different than man's. But let's leave that on hold. Don't dare say man is a puppet world. They're not. God's authority gives us freedom because the human will is free. So the danger of someone that is really locked into God is in control. And I don't want you to shoot everyone down that says that because they may be meaning something we're going to go to in a minute. So don't just, don't put on your spiritual boxing gloves and knock them out. But try to get an understanding to what they're trying to relay by that. But let me tell you the danger for them. The danger is it kills our passion for evangelism. The danger is they do something that the Bible has never told us to do. It has never told us to ignore our enemy. And yet somehow Christianity has made it very spiritual to ignore the devil because God is greater. And nowhere, even after the death and the burial and the resurrection, the Bible still is very clear to resist the enemy. So what is created is a non-resistance in battle. Let me tell you, unless you're Desmond Doss, don't go into a battle non-resisting. <laughs> because you better, <laughs> you better be really pulling it down spiritually if you're not going to put bullets in your gun when you go into a battle. And yet we are training our disciples constantly to ignore the enemy and never put up any type of what I would call 
strategic resistance. And with the enemy, you must resist. And, and my personal opinion on that is preventative is better. Not after it's happened, try to remove the mountain out of your front yard. Hey, let someone take a concrete truck and dump the concrete there, and you dig it out with a shovel. It's about the same. When you had a chance to resist the enemy dumping his payload right in your front yard. So, right there alone is enough to stop, to say the passion. Don't fight it as a spiritual battle. Let me tell you what it kills. It kills the urgency that the Bible tells us to pray with. Because praying to God can change something. And one thing you don't want killed is your urgency in prayer. And something not mentioned too much in Christian world with prayer. And yet the Bible makes a strong statement on the urgency of it. And I would say that also, don't make God so spiritual that your prayers are too formal with Him. Like everybody thinks, oh, does that mean I can cuss and complain and tell him what I think? No, 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 no. Look at what I'm going to tell you to do. The Jews have taken the concept that God is so magnificent. He's so big and so powerful that we must not even dare to speak his name. So they've taken and they've replaced the way they say his name. They replaced the way they spell his name because of that. But Jesus did just the opposite. He didn't make us pray to dear God up in heaven who's impersonal. He said to pray our Father. I mean, that takes God and makes him completely personal to call him Father. So, at this rate, I'm going to say, don't over-spiritualize your prayer time. Prayer with God means talking things out with him. So, just by the fact that we call it prayer, I think we're missing the ideal that prayer is communication. So, that means chat it out with him. I ask him questions. I ask him respectfully. I'm asking why. And he will talk to you. But we're making it very impersonal in the way that we communicate with him. And that's why he told you, he said, you're a slave when you don't know what I'm doing. But I bumped you up after three and a half years of being around me. And now I call you friend because now you know what the master is doing. Get into the realm that you know what the master is doing. That is not spiritual arrogance. That is called relationship. If you haven't figured your wife out after three years, you're not doing good in the area of relationship. You need to figure the woman out. Don't give me that book that says everything I've learned about my wife and you open it up and it's blank. <laughs> you and God should have worked some things out by now. Where you understand some things of what he's going to do. Oh, how dare we even say we might even be able to predict the Almighty's actions. Or at least his heart. That's communication. We think subconsciously, we think or subconsciously wonder that God uses evil to do his will. Then we are subconsciously thinking that God and the enemy actually have some kind of correlation or cohesion together to work together. And when we think those thoughts, God doesn't do it, but he gets the devil to do it. We don't resist evil the way that Jesus did. So Jesus made it clear for us and he said, a kingdom divided will not stand. A house divided will fall. He said, I don't work in conjunction with the devil. He would be creating a kingdom divided if he was working in partnership with the devil. They don't communicate. They don't see which color each one of them is wearing the next day to take out a child of God. It doesn't work that way. Jesus clearly gave us a very strong statement of 
This is not how it happens. And if you will look at the context of when he said that, he says something that will scare the EBGBs out of you afterwards. He said, you can blaspheme God and be forgiven. You can blaspheme me, but if you do it to the Holy Spirit. And it was in context of the Pharisees saying that casting out demons was done by the power of Satan. Don't mix the kingdoms. It doesn't seem like a safe place. I mean, you talk about him putting a reminder on there. He said, that's a hard-heartedness. Don't go there. So I would say, I would back completely off of the idea of thinking the devil has anything to do with God needing his handiwork. You have a problem with God's omnipotence and power if you think he has to have the devil's help. You need to get a little more into God's power if you think that. He doesn't need help. I've noticed he really doesn't need mine. It's my pleasure to get to partner with him and let him live through me. So it's the way he chose to do the earth. He sure didn't do it with the devil. So it's a submitted will. So even though he is in control, God is not controlling. He is not a control freak. That concept doesn't have a good connotation with me. It gives a wrong impression of his character when people blame God for these things. In God is control, the thing that you're doing to the person is you're giving them false expectations. When people think that God is so in control, then they begin to think that whatever happens to them is God. They think it's magical. And it's quit being about faith and obedience. And it started being like a genie. An automatic thing. It creates a powerlessness. When you're a child, you're powerless. Grow up into the Lord. Have some maturity. They take, if one good thing comes out of it, it confirms to them that it was God. It doesn't say all things work together for good is what it says. It doesn't say all things are good. And people read that different. It says all things work together for good. It doesn't say all things are good. You know, I loved how Corey Timboon illustrated that scripture. If you're making a chocolate cake, taste each ingredient separately. Egg, raw egg. Sugar's not bad. You start tasting each one individually, the butter. Cocoa looks, smells wonderful. Have you tried it? But mixed together, it is chocolate cake. And God is so committed to his goodness side that he uses his power side to enforce good. Mm, we're missing out. Quit mixing the kingdoms. This is a lot more fun on this side. So it's a myth when they think that everything happens is God's will. What happens if you don't have an opposite viewpoint is you never start hollering. And sometimes you can just holler this. I have a covenant with God. <laughs> God heals. You can have that assurance rise up in you that when you face that uncircumcised Philistine, that something in you says you are dealing with a covenant Christian here. There are covenant promises. These promises were cut in blood. I have a covenant over this. Don't kill that in a person. That needs to be what's coming up and out of their spirit. I can't tell you how many times I've had to 
face of Goliath. When it's screaming one thing to me and I'm saying, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of the armies of all of Israel. And today you will be like the dead meat on the field where the birds will eat you and the dogs will drag you off and they will lick you up. Oh, that's Jezebel. That I come to you in the name of the Lord. And you have that rise up inside of you because you know your covenant. You look into what God says that keeps you protected. And you live by it. You look into what God says of how to receive His promises for the day. And you pray into it. You receive your authority that you need for that day's problems. That morning so that you're not caught where Jesus says, I gave you authority, why couldn't you cast it out? And he doesn't give you, oh, I just want to encourage you for trying. Not Jesus. You wicked. No, I don't think he called him wicked then. He goes, you slow and unbelieving. How long am I going to put up with you? I mean, he doesn't give any points for failing. Gentiles, remember, he's Jewish. They don't even have a category for failure. <laughs> they think success. And so Jesus did that with them. He basically said, prepare to win. So I would say look at how to use your authority and actually do what he says. Study authority. Take time in your Bible. It came at a high cost. Study the authority that you've been given and use it. And then have some fun and get into the realm of miracles. Mm-hmm. Did everything you do today, was it just something that you could accomplish? Did you not get into the realm where you got into the impossible, where only God could have done what happened to your day today? Don't be content in staying in the realm of the natural. And everything you did, you could have done by your own good looks and your hands. Get into the realm where, oh, you're realizing that if God hadn't have shown up, I'm mincemeat. That literally you have to have God come on the scene for that to have gone down right. Start enjoying it. Don't be such a nervous Christian. So, what I want to say to you is when God is in control in the concept, they tend to think that I have to give away something in order to not believe that. But I'm going to tell you, I want you to receive right now that God is more powerful, more sovereign, with more strength, most, the strength of God, and unequal in His power than you could ever imagine. You will never get to the breadth and the depth and the strength and the power of this God. He is magnificent. Do not let them tell you that just because I don't believe that God is in control in the way they're saying it, I don't believe in an all-knowing, all-powerful, tremendously, whoom, he comes on the scene, there's smoke. I mean, the rock stars weren't the first that come out there and you feel the exhilaration of that power and just just the way he is don't sell him short on power know it believe it you're tapping into it dunamis we're not giving up that triangle that we've talked on of the God is powerful God has authority the leg of power don't make it small just because you've got a responsibility 
you're tapping into the God that literally the mountain shook, Hebrews said, and, and not even an animal or a person could even dare walk on that mountain. But Moses, he went to the top of the mountain with this God, and he spoke to him face to face. That should be how your prayer time feels in the morning. Mouth to mouth. All the other people are having dreams and visions, not you. You speak to this God that shakes the world. You might walk out and they might think your face looks on fire. The dread champion. We're selling ourselves so short by not understanding the godness of God. Oh, he's not lesser. We are that lump of clay. God's mastery and dominion over everything that he has made. God is omnipotent. He's strength. He's stability. And he is that rock of refuge and that place to trust. You can't use language strong enough to describe how big he is. And there is a chance he is still expanding. I mean, you're studying this and they think that, that perhaps God is expanding. I mean, the more we study the universe, the more vast. We're walking around on a red, dusty planet today and we're not even tapping into this God that sets the heavens and the stars. When the whole world is shaking and people say God is in control, what are they meaning? They may mean that they're going to believe that the earth is not going to come flying off its axis and sling out into space. That God has it. There's no end to His power. You don't have to sacrifice God's goodness to know Him and His power. And you don't have to sacrifice His power to know him as father. We don't have to lose relationship as father when we talk about this. You know, I had fun the other day and at some point I'm going to either let y'all watch the documentary or give you the high points, but I was looking at one on the world's first computer. And it was 2,000 years ago that they created this little handheld computer. I've never seen anything like it, how they measured the size of the universe with it, the complexity. If those wise men were part of this, I mean, it was very sophisticated the way they found Jesus. The bigness, the universe. Sometime I've been saying, Oh God, who maker of the universe, the one who set these planets, because they told me some things about how the planets are laid out that they understood 2,000 years ago. That when I talk to him, I talk to him in his language of how wonderful he is. How big, how majestic. Women, you know what it is. When you talk to your husband, you talk to him. Oh, you're strong. You're fabulous. <laughs> Enjoy your praise of him. For you, O oh Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and victory and majesty for all that is in heavens and earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O oh Lord, and you're exalted as the head above all. Both riches and honor come from you. You rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. That's a mouthful. Man, you get to enjoy what it feels like to praise another man. The glorious one. Maybe that's why Paul said, I can't even put into words what I'm feeling. If you've ever had the presence of God show up, I mean, you fall to your face. I mean, language fails me to say he's awesome. 
He, he's just, it just creates awe in your heart. That's First Chronicle 29, 11 through 12. I just read it. There's no end to him. So when I appeal to him, then my problems don't seem near as big when I say, oh, master and ruler of the world and the universe who hung these planets up and they're still to this day are perfectly ordered. And, and I just start telling him all that. And I said, oh, by the way, I have a little bitty problem. I'm sure you already know about it. It puts it in proper perspective. And yet my mind doesn't even know how to say to him what all he's done. I mean, I'm looking at it from down here on earth. You know when the astronauts watched the movie Apollo 13? They said there was one thing about it that was not realistic. They said when Ron Howard wrote that script, they said the one thing we didn't do is use God's name in vain. And yet that thing is full of GDs. And they claimed to have to be realistic. And they fabricated their own ideas. Because the astronauts said when we were slung out into space, all we could talk about is the awesomeness of God. They said it was so holy, we dared not speak such a word. Let's get it right. So... I am not willing to trade. In fact, I may be the believer of taking every Calvinist and say, I may actually believe in the power of God more than you do. Don't try to tell me I don't believe in this. You must have a very weak God, Mr. Calvinist. He's not impressing me in you. If you're the only Jesus I'm going to see today, it's not working. You're passive. Who wants a passive husband or wife or child? And at the same time that I build a case for his majesty and power and his gloriousness, and that's how I end my prayer with, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. I don't even want to say amen. Let's just keep this prayer rolling. I mean, it is such a beautiful, beautiful thing. At the same time, why are they telling me that to believe that God is not in control, I've just entered into the openness doctrine, that I have to believe that God is... He's expanding in such a way that he doesn't know the future. Why do they have to take away from me foreknowledge? I don't have to give up foreknowledge to believe this. I, am I missing something? Because I don't see how come I have to give this up. To tell you that I believe that prophecy is the flow or the stream or the river of foreknowledge. That I serve a God that knows the past. He knows the, my future. He knows right now. Oh, I'm enjoying this. I must make relationship with this God. I would be stupid not to abide with Him. He makes me look really good. I told God a joke once. I told Him, I said, God, you told me something in Scripture and I'm kind of breaking it with you, but you told me never to be unequally yoked. I said, we're not equal, but we're yoked. And so He made a joke back. So we started making jokes because I told Him, I'm very unequally yoked to you. You're getting the bad end of the deal if you haven't realized. Isn't that beautiful? You can enjoy your communication with Him. You're yoked to all power. For God knows the past, the present, the future. There's no limit to His knowledge. For God has everything completely understood before it happens. Take a peek at Romans 11.33. God's revelation of the future would not discard our free will. And with it, our choice to follow Him. Every day. 
choose it. So I'm asking myself a question. If there is free will, how is it that it somehow removes the power of God? For I enjoy thinking about the power of God. And I know I must bring something to the table. Or my life doesn't go pleasantly either on this earth or in heaven. I have people that see to it that I don't fail at this moment. And if there's foreknowledge, why do I have to no longer believe that there's free will? So I don't understand that free will somehow removes the power of God and foreknowledge somehow says that there's no free will. How can people tell me what I can have on this menu and what I can't have? I'm at a buffet table. I, I must pick. So I enjoy thinking how much he knows my future. It's not a, am I this or that? Either this or that. I'm, I'm both. You know how I advise my girls. The man comes to you. He has a ring. He has a honeymoon. He says, choose which? Women. The answer is both. <laughs> Do I love the gift and the givers? I have never seen a woman say no to a ring or a honeymoon. Though she desperately loves the man. Don't make this hard. It's all rolled up in one. The honeymoon, the ring that you flash, and the man that is more powerful than any father or lover you could ever have. Don't make it hard. Control. How I use my freedom to notes where it overrides a will. He doesn't force the world to do his will because it's love. He warns them. He tells them what his will is. He empowers them to do his will, but he doesn't make everyone do it. God is authority. He has a plan for our life. We are subject to Him. If you've reached maturity, and I think you're out of your teenage years, you'll realize He has your best interests at heart. When we mess up, it gives us a way back to Him. Or we can choose to rebel, to not obey Him, and go into destruction. He doesn't control us. That's the thing He doesn't do. God doesn't control Oh, but he does have his sneakiness to him, or his Jehovah, the conspirator, for he, people virtually have to climb over the roadblocks that God puts in their way to continue their course to hell. Every time you pray, God creates another roadblock in front of that person to keep from destroying themselves. Oh, that's the God we serve. Because it's the nature of God to look at a way to insert mercy into your life and to work Everything, every blow the devil has ever done it to you. To work that wickedness. The worst blow Satan has ever given you. Into good. That's power. Mr. Calvinist, that's power. So it really comes down to how control is defined. For me to answer you. So I would say to you, this is my answer. My deep theological thought out, spent 25 years thinking on this since this first night I've taught it. Didn't know what my answer was till 5 o'clock today. Does it work if I tell you that the person I love is in control of me? 
on earth. The person I love controls me. Does that make you want to clap? And I say the same is true about God. The person I love gives me freedom. The person I love is so compelling, I don't want to cheat on them. The person I love, I don't want to quit thinking about them. So if it doesn't work for me to say the person I love is in control of me, I don't think that God is in control of me. I think God is my authority. I think he is power, has power. I think he's the God of God, the Lord of Lord, the kings of kings. I think he's in charge, but I don't think he's in control. Better words for his power, there's a better word for his power than control. It might be God is in authority, it's in dominion, it's in reigning. And we may be in semantics, but we turn our stomach at thinking that a lover would control us. And I want to back away from it. I think a lover is so compelling that everywhere I look I find him. I want him. I need him. Oh, don't sell him short. Saying God is in control is too little. There's so much more. People are missing out. How it all began for man, God had authority with Adam and Eve. He was in charge of them in the garden. But God had given Adam and Eve delegated authority. And now they have a say in the matter. God in his sovereign authority gave man authority. He made him in his image. So that sovereign authority that God had, he actually put that in man so he has sovereign authority. The one thing God won't violate on you is your will. He won't. Sometimes I wish he would. All of you praying for people in your life, you wish God would just slap that apple out of Eve's hand and make that brother of yours walk with God. And Let's see, what do you want to do to your mother? I mean, you have something that you want to have God control. But he's gracious and he won't. He woos. He's the ultimate lover. So, God in his sovereign authority gave you authority. Sometimes I wish it was a little bit different (laughs) because I have made some bad choices. That is the one way we are made in his image. Free choice and a free will. In Genesis 1.28, God specifically delegates control of the earth to man. He says... His word for it is authority. You shall have authority over the earth. You're not allowed to control another human being. That's called witchcraft. Your prayers are not witchcraft. They're birthed out of the compelling love of God. Maybe even the sternness, because sometimes love is firm. Sometimes it's tough. But it's love. So while God was in authority and power, king of all kings, in charge, he was not in control. It was against his will for Eve to eat the fruit. Was this free will for man to sin? Was man controlling God? When he dared not do what he said after God was so gracious and gave him life and gave him everything he wanted? Well, I could say this. I know this for a fact. It was sin against love. When you sin... The greatest crime of all is you're sinning against love. It'll hurt you more than anything you'll ever do is when someone truly loves you and you sin against their love. 
there's not a hurt any deeper. Like I tell God sometimes, it'd be easier for you to take me to the spiritual woodshed and spank my behind than how I feel after the conviction I feel. For conviction is different than guilt. Conviction gives me the power to repent. Sin against love. Did create all these things and set them in motion? God is in control. Perhaps people believe that God sees them and understands and is working all things together for good. Perhaps that's what they're trying to say. But this comes from your choosing to deeply surrender to God, not from His control. For read the scriptures ahead of it. For those who love Him are committed to His service. Verse 26, are praying in the Spirit, groaning in the Spirit. Then all things work together for good. So, my conclusion on this is a prayer to relinquish control. A deep, deep submitting, surrendering to this God who works all things together for good. Me giving God a gift back. Him not trying to swap it from me. Him trying to not take something from me I don't want to give him. Him being gracious enough to let me give love to God. Him knowing that he is so remarkable, compelling. God even has a sense of humor. He's personable. But I can't stand not loving him back. Someone once said it's hard not to love someone who loves you. Quit taking this out of context. For it has to be you surrendering to God to receive these things that you so want to say by, by just saying God takes them from you by force or coercion when you wouldn't say it as your highest form of love. So a prayer to relinquish control. We have made a cheap substitute. We won't walk in authority, but as a Christian we attempt to control everything. What a sad, mixed, poor excuse for a Christian is. I think the hypocrisy stinks. I think this gets us in a lot of trouble with God because we won't walk in authority. We won't do it. It is too spiritual. But we will put on our spiritual peacock <laughs> feathers <laughs> and we will attempt to control every single aspect of our life. And what doesn't work, we blame him. We are willing to be controllers, but we are not people utilizing the authority that God has given us. Woe is us. What stupidity. Must he come to the earth again and explain what he gave to us 2,000 years ago? Can we not grab it, grasp it? Trying to be in control just tires us out because it's a futile exercise. And yet, the number one thing in a Christian's life is control. We're controllers. Maybe that's why we say it so often. Because if we were God, we would control. Look at parents. That's how you know they'd control. <laughs> Look at anybody who has what could be just God-given authority. And they don't use their wisdom and their cleverness. My dad was deranged. It was so appealing. Frustrating. <laughs> no words. So, get rid of the cheap substitute. Because you won't ever walk in authority if you're walking in control. You have to let control be crucified to Christ and surrender. People think they have control over us. Oh my gosh, now I've gone from meddling a little to a whole lot. Because I remember the Lord telling me, 
If you allow yourself to be controlled, I'm going to hold you accountable, Ahab. It's a sin to let people control you. It won't pass the mustard on Judgment Day to say, but they controlled me. My wife, she was so controlling. You know how she was. Won't work. It's a sin. Pilate rose up and said it to Jesus. Don't you realize that I have the power to either free you or to crucify you? Mm, that's a great statement to have on your lips at judgment. Jesus replied, you have no power over me. If it wasn't given to you from above, you could not do what you're doing today. I am laying my life down. People smart off. Are you going to let them have control over you? Because God says no. You're weak if you're allowing someone to control you. A wicked person or a weak person tries to control us. Trying to be in control wears us out because God doesn't even do it that way. He does it by authority. So these are your two prayers. Father, I've tried to control my life. I've even tried to control other people's behavior to suit my purposes. Even to make it be for what's for their good. Would you forgive me? I freely give you my will and my love. A prayer of authority of areas of responsibility. Father, I haven't taken my authority. Oh, I've tried to control it with the flesh, fear, selfishness. Father, I repent because I have not done it by authority. I haven't gotten up in the morning and prayed and quoted the word and done my preventative getting the enemy under my feet. I've not been one to tread on lions and serpents and cobras and fictitious dragons or pre-existent dragons if you're of that camp. I haven't taken my authority and so I repent for being passive. I repent for the church's lack of knowledge of this area of authority. I repent for being a minister and not teaching authority. I repent for my lack of hunger. I'm not being like a child and want to learn every day. I receive my proper place of authority. Apart from you, I can do nothing. But with you, God, all things are possible. Lord, give me your power, your wisdom, your strength to do your will and to walk in the authority that you place me in. And Lord, today would you let your will be done on earth. Oh Lord, for yours is the power, the glory, the honor. Would you bring all that down to earth today through me? For I deeply surrender to you. For I deeply love this God who loved me first. Amen. Amen.